Scripture lesson today is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is within me, a prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why, does, why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So as we continue, my lovely joke all summer has been we are in the summer in the Psalms. And we are here today at the 42nd Psalm. And if you have your Bible open, if you ever get to it, you'll see it says Book 2. And there's five total books all in the Psalms. We're not sure quite how they all come together, but it's compiled over a time from Moses all the way to Ezra. And each of those books, Book 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, they end with a doxology, something of a praise to God. This one... In 42, it's the first book of, or the first psalm in book 2. And it says it's written by the sons of Korah. And we're not, there's some debate over this, and I could be wrong, but a lot of arguments made that David is included in this, that he could be the author of this, and I think it makes sense that way. And kind of as we go through, it makes even more sense to me that David had to flee a few times in his life. The first time he fled from Saul when Saul was scared of him to overtake the kingdom. So he, David, fled. The second time is after being king, his son Absalom has a conspiracy to overtake the kingdom. And for that, David flees. And I think that's why it's David who writes this. Because we see in 2 Samuel 15, when this happens, David flees from the city... And they bring the ark with. And he says, no, no, no. Send the ark back to the city. And he comments to the guy, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, the ark, and his dwelling place, the temple. So we see how David in that chapter has a longing to return back to the temple. So that's where you get my opinion from. Now, I could be wrong, but... 
All the way up until recent, we've all agreed it was David, and now we've kind of broken apart. I'm sticking with David on this one, and it fits, I think, very nicely. So we begin. We get that first verse, and I just love it. The imagery of it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, God. You've pictured a deer hungry or thirsty, and it's <sighs> panting. And why is it panting? It, it needs refreshment. It needs survival. It needs to clean itself. And I did a little Google search, you know, why do deers pant for water? And I got a variety of answers. A lot of them right in the beginning were quoting off Psalm 42, and then there were more nature ones, and they almost felt the need to say, deers don't pant when they're thirsty. They pant when they want to cool down. But then they continue in that article, and they say, well, water helps the deer cool down. But I think they miss the point of what David's getting at here. He's not trying to give you a, a lesson on deer, or what deer do, or the actions of deer. He's trying to show you a point. And the point is the longing for something. As that deer is panting, Wanting thirst, wanting nourishment, wanting refreshment. So our soul for God, wanting. Oh, where is God? I can't wait until he returns. I can't wait to be back in the church, to feel refreshed after a week where I was highs and lows. I was worshiping at a high point, and then I got into a fight with someone that I deeply regret. I hit a low. Oh, Lord, please refresh me. So you see this sense of longing. So we won't miss that point, that what the longing is for is for God and fellowship with him. Verse 2 kind of continues this thought. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, you sense that the want, the thirst. And we know that the scriptures talk about thirst a lot. Jesus, at the well with the woman, he tells her, everyone who drinks this water, earth's water, will be thirsty again. But the water I give, they'll never thirst. Indeed, the water will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here we have temporary thirst and eternal thirst. Your temporary thirst, you can quench it. Drink water. Thirst goes away. This eternal thirst, wanting to be filled, is in each and every person. We need that water for the spiritual thirst to be given to us by someone outside of us. We can't look in and find this source of water. It's outside of us. And we see that's precisely what Jesus does. He quenches that thirst. And he tells the woman at the well, if you take the water, you won't be thirsty. And that's true for us. So the trust in this Jesus who says this, why should we trust him? Now we know, but the world needs to know. He is the one who does such a work. How he cleanses everything and brings that quenching of thirst. He's God and he takes it as part of the plan to bring this salvation 
that we can trust the finished work of Jesus. And it, because he took our sins, he dies on the cross because of us and our opposition to God and our opposition to God's law. Jesus takes it upon himself and God executes the judgment of that sin on him. And in his death, burial, resurrection, new life is given to those who put their faith in him. It's so gracious, this God, that he would even forgive sin. Knowing this gets us to that point in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, the one who is merciful to me. And we get the realness of the Psalms. You get the emotions, unlike you know, where you casually meet people today and you say, how you doing? They go, good, how you doing? And there's nothing to it. There's real emotion here. David says in verse 3, my tears have been my food all day and night. It's overwhelming, this sense of longing of separation from God. Now, his mindset is he wants to get back to the temple. And if you've been away from church long enough where you've been away, you think, man, I really miss my church family. And you get this sense of longing. I can't wait till the Sunday I'm home and I can get to church. Now, some this day might look at David and say, well, you sound pretty sad there, buddy. Maybe we should get you on some medication to work on that depression you're running with here. But what they're missing in that sense would be, that's only for a chemical imbalance. This is a soul problem. There's no cure for a depressed soul unless Christ come in. Without Christ, our tears will be our food all day and night. That is the despair for the non-believer. So we pray for the non-believer that their tears will go and that Christ would come and that they would be filled with life. And that they would no longer say, where is your God? Because that idea expresses that God is absent. And we know how wrong this is. God has created all things. He is not absent. He is quite the opposite. Everywhere. He sees everything. He's powerful. Nothing gets past him. There's no surprise that takes him off where he thinks, oh my, I can't believe that just happened. He knows. Nothing can defeat him. So for the Christian, we can join Paul in Romans 8 where we say, I'm sure that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But David has not gotten out of this sense of longing yet. It's not just like a snap it out kind of thing where he just wakes up. He's still longing to be there. So you get verse 4 is like a memory to him where he recalls the joyful memory of going with the throng and leading them in a procession to the house of God with great shouts and a song of praise and a multitude keeping festival. The, the recollection of events here only increases his desire to get back to the temple. He wants to worship and he wants to worship with others. The sense of corporate worship 
It's what we do every Sunday. We live in such a place where we can do this without anyone coming in and locking our doors. We can meet. And if it's not here, we'll meet anywhere. This inner conflict of David is fueling his sadness that he he can't go back. But this whole sense of worshiping together is for the idea of why we have church. We worship with other believers. And we worship and look up to heaven and we say, wow, this God is amazing. If only we could do this every day. And one day we will. So we get to verse 5 and you see the continuing internal fight of David. He's talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? We may have talked on this before. We have this enemy, trifold enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil. And they're all against you. And in this case, the flesh is trying to push him down too. How can his own body betray him like this? He's trying to, the flesh is trying to rise up discontentedness. And it's, this is where God has placed you, David. But that's the best part of the psalm, that verse 5. Because every psalm kind of does this, and this is why I love it. You get this bad, 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 change perspective, up. And here he does that. He looks at himself and he says, why are you so sad within me? But then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God, my salvation. This sense of hope. You can't take it on the inside. And of course, when I hear the word hope, it drives my mind back to my favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption, where Andy Dufresne is arguing with his buddy Red earlier in the movie about hope. Red tells Andy, hope's a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. And at the end of the movie, they both get out of jail, and it's been out since 1989. If you haven't watched it now, I'm breaking the the ending for you. They end up back together, but he writes him a note. And in that note, he says to him, Andy writes to Red, and he says, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I just love that line in the movie because it's, it's true. The hope of the Christian, it can't be taken away from you. It won't die. The hope that we will again praise the Lord is always true. Ultimately, we know one day we will because we will all one day leave this earth to be with God. So we will get to praise him again. So in knowing that, we do not lose hope. It's also this hope is a gift from the Spirit. It helps us to carry on. It reminds us, oh yes, the Lord is with me. He loves me and has been merciful to me thus far. I will press on and be faithful to him even in my current situation. Wherever the Lord has placed me, I will stay faithful to him. Where even if I'm downcast or my soul is sad, I will carry on and praise him. In verse 7, we get a comparison of water. Verse 1, we get the sound of the cool flowing streams. It sounds nice. It sounds like I could go put my feet in it. I could get water. It sounds safe. 
Verse 7, we get the opposite. We get a waterfall and a wave. You know, when you think about the roar of a waterfall, like Niagara Falls, how loud it can be, and how you do not want to be standing right underneath the waterfall, taking the impact of the water. Same with a wave where it's just crashing down on you. That's his comparison to his pain. It just feels like a constant barrage of weight coming upon him. So even though he knows hope in God, it just feels like the weight is still coming upon him. So the battle is still going on in him because that pain of the memory of being what once was and what is now, he wishes to go back. But the hope remains. And verse 8 gives us more reason for hope. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. How lovely is that? That God cares so much for his people. It's constant. You know, when you think of God's love constant like a stream of water, it's just going to keep going. And at night, his song, like as a parent to a child, to calm down with a lullaby, to bring ease. It, it gives this psalmist here, David, a sense of joy. And then in 9, he says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of oppression from the enemy? See, it, it shows we pray based on what we are feeling sometimes, not what is actually happening. It's a, a man-looking perspective. God, where are you? We know you're here, but I don't sense you. I can't, I can't quite get my finger on it. Where are you? And I, the one commentator writes on this, and he says this, if we read the preceding verse, why have you forgotten me? In the past tense, the meaning will be this. Since God has shown himself so kind towards me, I will pray to him now with much more greater confidence. For the experience which I have had of his goodness will inspire me with courage. But if the verse, why have you forgotten me, is rendered in the future tense, David combines the prayer which it contains with the reflections which faith has led him to make. And surely whoever from a persuasion of the paternal love of God anticipates for himself the same favor which David has just described will also be induced from his example to pray for it with greater confidence. Basically, just reading that, I was like, I had to read it four times, but at the end of it, I, I thought, man. So no matter how we look at it, if God is for us, who can be against us? We seek him boldly because we know who he is. But then the commentator kind of continues and goes a little more further into the thought. And he says, Since I expect that God will be favorable to me, inasmuch as by day he manifests his favor towards me and continues to do this, that even by night I have the occasion to praise him, I will cry the more frankly my misery before him, saying, O oh Lord, my rock, why have you forgotten me? In making such a complaint, 
The faithful Christians are not to be understood that they mean that God has rejected them, for they didn't believe that. If they were under his care and protection, it was in vain that they were calling upon him. No, they speak in this manner only according to the senses of the flesh. This forgetfulness, then, relates both to the outward appearance and the disquietude by which the faithful are troubled according to the flesh. Although in the meantime they rest assured by faith that God regards them and that God will not be deaf to their request. So the point is, dear Christian, God will not forget you. You might not feel it. Sometimes you might not desire him as much as you think you ought. But God does not forget. And he certainly does not forget his children. We know, and Jesus says this, he says, you know, if you parents know how to give gifts, you know how much more I, the Father, the Father will give gifts for his children. So we know God is loving, especially to his children who have placed their faith in Christ, that we are heirs with Christ. So we know he's ever-present. Now, if you noticed, verses 10 and 11 kind of seem to, I heard that before. And it's true. The, the question, where is your God, and all of verse 11 is the same as verse 5. I thought, well, maybe it's written for musical reasons, you know, where they just want to have a little chorus that they put in there. It is a psalm, you know. But I think he does it for another reason. And it's one that's a really good one in my mind. Remembering. How we do this so often, you know, I go to the store for three things and I'm walking around the store with two things and I'm like, what's that third thing I was supposed to get? And I can't quite remember. So then I'm walking into the store and I almost sound like, you know, Rain Man where I'm saying, oh, I need my underwear, I came out. And I got to keep remembering where I am going. So I walk into the store and I say, okay, I need tissues, I need baby formula, and I need, oh, I forget what I need. Now I have to text Amber and she tells me. So remembering is crucial for the Christian. Hope in God. He even repeats that at the end too. It's a reminder. We need to keep telling ourselves, remember, hope in God. Oh yeah, that's so simple. Let's not forget hope in God. So it's a reminder for us today. Why are you upset about the ways the world is right now? The state of affairs and all these things. They are sad for sure. We are in some pretty fun times. But remember, hope in God. For we shall again praise him. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for your word and for your psalms that even they show us in our, our deepest of sadness and moments, you are worthy to be praised. Remind us that we are to hope in you when we feel like you're far away. And remind us that you are indeed not far, rather that you are near and that we are to seek you in all things. For it is in your Son's name we pray. Amen.